legacy? What does the legacy of faith look like? Um, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn over there. Um, I told Dot verses 3 through 11. Uh, I was really tired when I texted her. It's verse 1 through 11. Um, so on the screen it's correct, but in the bulletin it's not. That's my fault, not hers. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've been really thinking about this word legacy for uh, quite a while, to be honest. Um, I'm adopted. I was adopted into a family at 18 years old. Um, and since I've been a Walton, we've experienced a lot of death in our family. Um, from the time I was adopted, it was like year after year, some key figure in our family, like a grandparent or an uncle or somebody, had gotten sick or just died unexpectedly. And um, I don't know if it's bad genes or what it is, but we just experienced a lot of things over the few years. And um, since I'm adopted, and I haven't had all these years with these people, I can only really rely on things that I hear from my family, from their friends, um, things that my siblings will tell me, stories they've heard from them, and things my parents have told me and showed me through documents, and uh, things they've written to them or said, or pictures they have. I don't, I don't have any first-hand experience with these people as much as my family do. Some, some first-hand experience at all. I have grandparents on my mother's side that I will never meet this side of eternity because they passed away when my sister was a small child, the one that just got engaged and is 27 years old and very happy for. <laughs> um, and, and so what lives on in my life from them is the legacy they left behind and nothing else. The memories they left behind, the, the things they did, the stories they told, the life they lived, that's the only thing that I will ever have to hold on to of these people that mean a lot to me, but I've never got to experience these things with them. And as we're sitting in my Uncle William's funeral, he was a man of many layers. You know, he was like an ogre, you know, he's like an onion, he has layers. Um, and there were things about him that I just didn't know. I knew he was a goofy old man. I, I remember singing uh, the 12 Days of Christmas every year at his house, and he would always sing Five Golden Rings. I remember the year after his lung transplant when he was finally able to sing it again. And I remember these things, but I didn't know a whole lot about him until on the day that he died, and I met so many people that knew him and loved him, and I heard about the, the life of faith that he lived. I, I learned about the life of sacrifice that he lived and the life that he always put others before himself and things that I can see now looking back and when I look at his life, but things I didn't really know because I never experienced them firsthand. And so I'm thinking about legacy, legacy, legacy. And then uh, two weeks ago, I had the privilege to go to youth camp with my brother's church, Oak Hill Baptist, and uh, I got to serve as a volunteer with his youth group. And we talked a lot about legacy. Uh, in fact, one of the messages an illustration was used that I'm going to show you in, uh, at the end of my message and it was just talking about legacy and the life that you live behind and what do you want your legacy to be and so that's kind of what brought me here to Titus 3 and we're going to talk about a legacy of faith uh, so just to give you a little bit of background on the book of Titus because we're not going through the whole thing or the, the letter of Titus uh, it was written by Paul to Titus Titus was a, a liaison of sort for the apostles he would speak kind of on the authority for the apostles. In their absence, he would address the church and kind of give them some written 
uh, instructions from the apostles and just kind of make sure things were going right. Um, they were like elders. He was like an elder. Um, maybe not in a necessarily in a preaching capacity, but he would just kind of make sure that people were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Um, and he, he probably did preach um, some. We're not really sure, but we do know that he was a, a liaison, a go-between for the disciples or the apostles and the church that he was dealing with. Um, it focuses heavily on faith and practice. It talks a lot about belief and behavior. You know, how those two things really coincide with each other because you can't really have one without the other. It talks about kind of how your new nature is really kind of what you uh, live. It talks about uh, teaching sound doctrine. It talks about uh, qualifications for elders. There's a whole lot in this short little letter about Christian living and about Christian life. And it was written around 64 AD. Um, that's going to be important in just a minute. I know this is a whole bunch of information. You're like, why are you telling me this? Because background's important and it helps us understand you know, where it's coming from. <laughs> um, and so, uh, written around 64 AD, and, and Titus 3 is really kind of the culmination of all the practical advice that Paul's given to the church on godliness. And here, he's going to essentially sum up um, the things that he's told them so far in this letter and some things he said in other letters. So, uh, if you want to turn to Titus chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. And the words will be on the screen. It says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, and to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, And I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that each person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it's true and that it's right. There's no error in it. That what it says, we need. God, I pray that today we would open our hearts and our minds to you and to your word. Father, I pray that you would speak through me and use me as a vessel. God, give me the ability to speak clearly and boldly. God, let me be hidden behind your cross and you be glorified. Father, I pray that as we just dive into this together, that you would just show us how you want us to live and respond to your word in obedience. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, when I look at this passage, I see a lot about what it means to live a legacy of faith, to leave a legacy of faith. And you may not see it at first, um, but I I have a few points that I think will kind of help us see this. So, uh, the first thing I think that we'd see... I can get this thing to work. Oh, no. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, nope. 
There we go. Um, oh, what? We're good. Good. All right. The first thing I think I see, I see in this passage is that a legacy of faith calls for godliness towards the world and others. See, Paul talks about uh, reminding the people here to be submissive of rulers and authorities and to be ready for every good work. Uh, as, as a Christian living in the first century Roman culture, this would have been a, a not easy command. It wouldn't be something that you would want to hear. Um, the rulers and authorities uh, in this culture were godless. Um, they were terrible, abusive, and they established systems that were anti-Christian to the extreme. Um, in fact, some have even said... Uh, that to be a Christian in Roman culture was to be a second-class citizen in your own home. It wasn't good. Um, Not to mention the fact that the the current emperor of Rome at this time uh, was a man named Nero, who, uh, I don't know how much history you know, but I love history. And uh, Nero was a very bad man. Um, He persecuted Christians. He hated Christians. He hated faith. Um, somewhere around 65, uh, 63 A.D., I think it was, uh, Rome had burnt to a crisp while Nero was absent. And uh, I don't know how he convinced the people, but somehow he convinced the Roman citizens that it was the Christians' fault that Rome had burned. And so he began what was the first really mandated onslaught of Christians uh, in history since the faith really began by a, an outside source other than a religious source. So not like the Pharisees, but the first... Emperor, the first governmental authority to really issue a decree against Christians. I'm not talking about like people of faith like the Israelites, to Christians, the church. And he uh, did terrible things to them. He would stretch them around trees. He would, he would murder them and put their bodies on post and put them in a wax shirt and then light them on fire to light his courtyards for his parties. He was a pretty sick and twisted man. Uh, he, he, terrible. I something that we've never seen in our culture. And yet, Paul says to be submissive and obedient and to be ready for every good work. Now, I don't know about you, but if I lived under the reign of someone like that, it'd be really hard to be submissive and obedient. In fact, this idea is so against the modern grain of American Christianity, where nationalism replaces faith, and uh, protesting politics and policies we don't agree with, and ignoring governmental authority in the name of Jesus have become a commonplace. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's obviously a point in which we don't submit to things that are going to cause us to break our conscious faith as a believer. I'm not talking about things that make us uncomfortable, but things that are wrong, uh, i.e. abortion, right? We don't support abortion even if the government supports it because it's murder, right? We don't support um, uh, other ideologies uh, that make us bow down to some system uh, because we're Christians and we don't bow down to those systems. But there is a way to live peaceable. There is a way to live respectful. There is a way to submit to authority to an extent. That's the biblical way. You know, Paul, uh, when he is preaching the gospel and he gets arrested uh, by the Romans he uh, he basically says whether it's right before you or men 
Uh, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel whether you like it or not, essentially, because preaching the gospel is a command from God, and that supersedes governmental authority. So if the government tells us we can't preach the gospel, that's obviously a, a command we don't bow down to because the gospel supersedes any authority. God's authority supersedes any authority, but there is a, an extent to where we're called to live submissive and respectful towards culture. I think back towards Daniel. Daniel, uh, if you know the story, was uh, taken captive by the Babylonians. He lived in Babylon. He, Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler. and Daniel had a lot to deal with. There was a lot of things he didn't submit himself to. But he always seemed respectful. He always seemed um, submissive to Nebuchadnezzar to an extent. And when the, the moments arose for him not to be submissive, he didn't. You know, when, when he had to bow to the statue, he didn't. But when he received the punishment for his actions, he took them. He, he wasn't scared of, of culture. He wasn't scared of government. He wasn't scared of the system because he knew that God superseded that. And so he was respectful as long as he was able to be. And he took the punishment for his actions when he couldn't be respectful. Now, he, some of you guys are looking at me like, whoa. <laughs> uh, but what are, what are I, what's the point in all this? Well, uh, I'm a pretty conservative, uh, kind of lean Republican, Christian, and American. And uh, it's really tempting for me to submit to like this nationalistic ideology of uh, control and uh, wanting to live my own way. Uh, I, I'm a heavy believer in the Second Amendment. When you see me on the street, uh, I'm usually carrying a firearm if I'm not at work. Uh, that's just who I am. I want to be able to protect myself, and I want to be able to protect my family and people that matter to me. Uh, but there's an extent to that where it's, you know, I can't just up and rally against something that I don't like. You know, I can't just up and go against a system that, that makes me upset because it makes me upset because that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus would, would submit and he would love people as much as he could unless it called for a break of conscience and a break of faith. And so I, I don't want to harp on this too much, but <clears throat> Paul, Paul's making a point here that to, to make an impact in the world, you've got to be different. The world fights, stands up and fights against systems they don't like. The world stands up and causes division and causes quarrels and causes arguments over superficial things that don't ultimately matter. The world wants to fight about the dumbest stuff. We're Christians. We should have one focus, and that's Jesus. Everything that we do should be superseded by the fact that we know and love Jesus. Everything we do should be superseded by the fact that... <clears throat> That God is our, our all and our everything, and, and Paul goes on to say that you know to be uh, uh, to be nice and to be respectful and to be uh, uh, what's the word that he uses here to be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. He doesn't say people that are nice or or people that uh, deserve it or to believers, but he says all people. And I love Greek, but there's not a really deep Greek word study on the word all. It means all. All means all, and that's all all means. That's, that's what it means. And, and so Paul is telling us to be this way towards all people. So how do we do that? How, do we, how are we respectful and courteous to people who seemingly don't deserve it? To people who are, are mean and, and not courteous to us. To people that 
uh, make us so mad? How do we do that? Well, I think it, it's this. We remember where we came from. A legacy of faith requires that we remember where we came from. Paul goes on to remind Titus uh, to remind the people where they came from. They too were once just as separated from God as their godless neighbors and leaders were. They were once hostile in mind and heart, foolish, lost, following the ways of the world. Paul goes on to say all these things, but God in his kindness saved them from that. He saved us from that. That's who we once were. And he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's changed us from the inside out because of his goodness and not our own. And he's given us the ability to live how he's called us to live. He's justified us. He's made us heirs to eternal life just because of who he is and not because of anything that we have done. And that's important to remember when we talk about other people. Because it's the way God reacted towards us had nothing to do with the way we were. Because if it did, we would all be condemned to hell for eternity. But he, in his loving kindness, took our place and he died for us. Ephesians 2.1 says this, um, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you, it's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Hmm. That's my favorite phrase in the Bible, probably a lot of people's, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, yeah. So, uh, this, I could just end it right here. Like that's, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that's like, that's it. You know, like you were once dead and lost, completely separated, under the wrath of God, but God in his kindness completely reversed that. And not only has he just saved us from his wrath, but he's seated us at his right hand. He's made us heirs of the heavenly gift. He's done all these things, and we're like, that's not by faith. That's um, it's not by works. It's by faith. This is no man may boast. And that's really, we really like to end it right here. Verse 9. That's where he likes to end. Yeah, not a result of works that no man may boast. That's right. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So great, we're not saved by our works. Nothing that we do is ever going to be good enough to save us, right? Because we're not going to be perfect. But we're created for good works. <laughs> we like to ignore that a lot of times. Um, and so the thing that I think that we see 
Um, and, and, and this mentality of understanding this, it should encourage us to live a life of devotion and godliness. And it should enable us to have compassion and mercy on people who don't have hope and who don't have Jesus. It should help us suck it up when it's hard to submit to authorities and leaders who are above us. That should encourage us to do that. And the third thing we see is that a legacy of faith demands personal holiness. Paul uh, begins to close out this passage in verses 8 through 11. And he, he says things like, Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things that are excellent and profitable for who? Not, not profitable for himself. Huh. Profitable for people. And then he says to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law. Um, things that are unprofitable and worthless. But he, he closes out and he, he, he says believers should devote themselves to good works and a life of godliness. See, Christianity is... 100% grace and grace alone by, through faith alone and Christ alone. But there's, there's a, an extent where it requires devotion. There's an extent where it, it devire, uh, de, uh, requires you to put some work in. It requires you to actually do something. Um, you know, we read the Bible and there's so many commands and I think that sometimes we kind of get the mentality like, that's great that those people did that. God's never going to call me to do that. You know? But that's not true. God very well could call you to do that. Uh, there's, this, there's this pastor named David Platt, and he wrote this book called Radical. And I don't know if you've read that book, but if you haven't, you definitely should. Um, I don't always agree with everything he says, but in this book, he, he basically talks about a lifestyle of, of radical abandonment to Jesus. And he talks about passages where you know, Jesus tells the rich young ruler to go and sell everything that you have. And he's like, American Christians would like to read that passage and go, that's great. God's, God's never going to call me to do that, you know. But what if he does? Is he worth it? You know. Uh, but above that, above those radical things, he just simply calls us to live holy. You know, ab- above doing something insane and crazy like going to a third world country or, or starting a, a ministry in Kenya, which is amazing, and doing all these, these crazy big things. God may not call you to do those things, but he does call you to be holy. He does call you to live righteously. He does call you to do your best to serve him and honor him in everything that you do. And, that, and that's something that I often find myself falling in the trap of that, like, you know, God's forgiving and God's loving and God's just and God's grace. And it's like, but he has called me to live holy. He has called me to live pure, to, to be above reproach, to be an example for him in all that I do. And that's everything from work, from extracurriculars, when I go to the bowling alley with my family, when, when I'm out with friends at a movie, when I'm in a group text with coworkers or friends. Places that we often forget, like, oh yeah, I'm I'm a Christian here too. You know, like we walk outside these four walls and sometimes it's really easy to go, like, Oh yeah. I did my Christian thing this week. You know, and we and we let's be honest, and I'm I'm not trying to be like, you know, 
anyone down anyone's throat. But we're all we all do that to an extent. Like we try to act like we don't we don't want to say that, but there's always an essence of that, right? And, and so, like you always want to put on your Sunday best, right? I, that wasn't something that I really grew up in, like with that mentality. Like I just came to church how I was, you know, like t-shirt, gym shorts, Crocs. I didn't wear Crocs. I thought Crocs were gross till like two years ago, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> And uh, they still are kind of gross, but they're comfortable. Um, so, <laughs> but you always want to put on your Sunday best. You always want to do your best. And um, I heard, I think it was Francis Chan one time preaching this sermon, and he was like talking about the triumphal entry, and he was saying, you know, basically don't let your life shout Hosanna on Sundays and then shout crucify him the rest of the week. And I was like, wow. And that was like a really big like key thing for me. Like, oh, wow, like. Does my life do that? And <clears throat> you really have to start thinking about, like, my, my faith should really marinate into everything that I do so that every, everything that I participate in, every action that I take should really kind of reflect Christ. And does it always do that? Heck no. You know, I fail all the time. But it should be my goal and my desire to do that, and that should be the goal of every Christian, to devote ourselves to things that are profitable for people, um, to be... Uh, to try to do things that are genuinely good and not good by the world standards, by God's standards. To, to try our best to live holy. To try our, our best to seek perfect righteousness. Um, and and I think in our culture, we're really, um, we don't like commitment. Uh, you know, there's this thing called FOMO, which is fear of missing out. But there's this new thing that psychologists are calling FOBO, which is fear of better options. Um, and I see that a lot with teenagers working in youth ministry. Um, you know, it used to be you could be like, kind of like, this is going to sound bad, but you could kind of like emotionally manipulate kids to come to things like, oh, you don't want to miss it, you know. And now it's like, I'll be there in case not- unless nothing else comes up, you know. <laughs> like, you know. Um, because now, like, there's so many, there's, we have such a digital world, and you can see everything that's happening at one time. And, like, if they see a better option, then they're just, they don't want to commit to things, you know. <laughs> and um, and so we're like that with our faith. Like, sometimes we want to live holy, but if there's a better option for us, we're like, ooh, let me dive into this for a minute, you know. Um, and so, like, we don't really want to be committed to the Christian life or to, to small church culture we don't really want to be devoted to that type of lifestyle if there's something better out there <coughs> and, and uh, that's kind of like what we do and it demands that we do that that we are devoted that we are committed to God and, and to a local church and to all these things it demands personal holiness uh, living a life of devotion and work for the Lord is the call of everyone who claims Christ as Lord The fourth thing that I see, and, and the final thing, is that living a life of legacy is not about us. Like, what? Well, wait, you just talked about these legacies of these people and things they've done and things like that. <coughs> I'm going to say a name, and I want you to tell me what their legacy is. Ready? You, I, I actually want you to do it. Ready? Michael Jordan. Uh, Tom Brady. They don't know who Tom Brady is? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, 
I don't know. Jeff Gordon. Racing, right? Everyone's got things they're famous for. Billy Graham. That was a good one. Was that? <laughs> Preaching, faith, gospel. Yeah, all those things, right? What if I said your name? What are you going to be known for? What, what's your legacy going to be? You know? Uh, Tim Tebow. Yeah, if, you, if you're a football fan, you would say mediocre football. If you're a Christian, you'd probably say faith. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a legacy there, right? And so that, the Tim Tebow thing is a great example because here's one thing I do want you to understand about legacy. Your legacy, it does matter to an extent what the world thinks, but it should really matter more about what believers see in you and how you live and how you act because we're supposed to be called to, to, to live and to help each other and help each other grow like Tim Tebow. The world does not really recognize him for his faith. They think he's a sucky football player. And I think they're right. Um, but, <laughs> um, but when I see Tim Tebow now, I think of uh, a man of, that has used his platform to share the gospel. And he's used the, his exposure for the glory of God. Um, and there's so many things like that. And don't get me wrong, you do, you do want to live a life where the culture can see you as blameless. But they're not going to, like when he dies, you're not, they're not going to go, oh, he's a great man of faith. You know, There's a level of that. But your, your legacy is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. As, as a product of a sin-sick and prideful world, it's easy for us to think that we are the central focus of the legacy that we leave behind. However, as a believer, it's so much more than us. Our legacy is about something much higher than us. It's about a higher purpose. It's about God. It's about a higher being. It's, it's something so much greater than this. What I'm doing, how I'm... The things, I, what do I want to be known for when I die? Um, you know, it's, it's so, it should be so much more than just the things that I did. It should be about the creator that I worshipped. Um, I used to work at Chick-fil-A. And uh, I started out there as a, a regular team member. And I wanted to move into leadership. Um, and I had to go through an interview process. And I remember... Like, I didn't really like working at Chick-fil-A. I was kind of, like, embarrassed to work there a little bit because, like, working fast food and I'm 24 years old or whatever. <clears throat> and not that there's anything wrong with that, but just that was my pride, you know, myself. Like, I wanted to be, do bigger things, you know. And so um, I remember, going, like, I just had to kind of make it to myself. Like, this is not about me. It's about serving the Lord and wherever I am. And it's about uh, just making this company look good. And... Um, <clears throat> There was this, there's this plaque when you walk into the restaurant, if you go in the right door, because everyone goes in the wrong door all the time. But that has uh, Chick-fil-A and all, all the garb, and then it has Jason Councilman, who is the owner-operator of the Chick-fil-A in Rincon, Georgia. And, uh, you know, I, it really just a, appeared to me like, wow, everything that I do in this restaurant is a reflection of him. Like when people call and they want to complain, they always want to talk to the owner. We don't ever let them talk to the owner, but that's who they always want to talk to, right? Because it's a reflection of them. The company I work for now uh, is a foundation repair company, and on the side of our trucks, our owners are just playing on the side of it, right? So everything that we do is a reflection of them. It's a reflection of me, but it's also a reflection of them, right? And so I remember sitting in that interview, and uh, they asked me, like, what's the most important thing about being a leader here? And I just told them, like, well, everything that I do is not 
uh, just a reflection of who I am, but it's also a reflection of Jason. You know, when, when they walk in that restaurant every day, they don't see my face on the wall. They don't see my name on the wall. They see his name. When they call, when a customer calls uh, Chick-fil-A Cares and makes a complaint about, you know, someone not doing something, it's, it's a, a dot on Jason's record, not on mine. Cares has no control over me, but they have every control over him. Um, <clears throat> when I do something mad and someone wants to talk to the owner, they're, they're cussing the owner out, not me. You know, and we did have people that cussed team members out, but it's a chicken sandwich, get real. But anyway, um, like, <laughs> it happens, right? Everything that I did was a reflection of, of myself, but it was also a much bigger reflection of the company. It was a reflection of Jason Councilman. And, um, and this is really, like, kind of how we should see our spiritual walk. Like, it, there's a major element of how you live and how you interact with people. And, like, you want to get good reviews on Chick-fil-A Cares because you get bonuses for it, right? But you, you, want, you want people to see you doing good things for the Lord. But everything that you do is a really much of a, a reflection of something much bigger than you, and it's of God, right? It's, um, a, a guy we used to go to church with posted this thing yesterday, and this wasn't even my sermon originally, but he said, if people hate you because of Jesus, that's expected. But if people hate Jesus because of you, that's a problem. And it's like, wow, that's really good. That'll preach. And um, <clears throat> and this is not like a new idea. This is all throughout Scripture. It's a few verses that I list. You know, 1 Corinthians 2.15 tells us that we are the aroma of Christ. Uh, when kings would win wars or battles in these centuries, they would go to the towns they conquered and they would ride through and they would have a big old buckets of perfume surrounding their carriages. So that when they left, long after they were gone, the scent of that king was there. Uh, when we go somewhere, we should leave a pleasing aroma of Christ. If, you know, metaphorically. Some, some people do some, leave some aromas. But, you know, you should leave a, a, a spiritual <coughs> aroma of Christ. People should have a, a sweet taste of him in your mouth when you leave. And if you do things that make them not have that, that's a problem. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 tells that uh, he desired for the church <coughs> to know one thing. Christ and Christ crucified. That should be the, the main goal of everything that we portray. Isaiah 26, 8 tells us that God's name and renown should be the desires of our souls. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we're reminded that every action we take and everything we do and every interaction we have should keep Jesus in mind. We are representatives of Christ Jesus. His renown and His legacy, His work, his love and his sacrifice should be the legacy that we seek to live, leave in the hearts of people. When I die, I mean, I hope people think good things about me, obviously. But I hope that people know Jesus. Um, I've, I've made lots of mistakes. I'm only 27 years old. I hope I've got a lot of life to live. But I, when I go away from this earth whether it's tomorrow or 50 years from now. I hope that the, the impression that I leave on people is not he was a mediocre guitar or he was an okay youth pastor or he was pretty good at recruiting. Um, I hope that it's that I love Jesus. I hope that when I get to heaven and hear well done, that I know it's not because of things I did. It's because of who I served. 
Um, at the end of the day, our lives are vapors, right? We only have a brief moment in time to make an impact on our world. And the question is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to waste it? You know, <coughs> we looked at this analogy at camp, but um, this is a headstone. On the headstone, there's two dates. Right? There's the day you're born and the day you die. God decides those. Right? God knew that on November 7th, 1918, well, he was old, that Billy Graham was <laughs> going to be born. And he knew that on February 21st, 2018, that Billy Graham would breathe his last breath. The question is, what are you going to do with that little dash in the middle? That dash represents your life. That, that little moment of time that you have some control over what you're going to do with it. What are you going to do with that dash? Are you going to live a life focused on you and your accomplishments? accomplishments? Or are you going to live a life in abandon to Jesus for his name and his renown? Are we going to decide to make him known above all or to make us known above all? And, and, and this is the legacy that as Christians we continue <clears throat> to live on as we take communion, which we're going to do in just a moment. We remember what Jesus did and we physically take part in an activity where Jesus ate his last uh, meal with his disciples. And he, he says to do this until we meet again. And it, it's just a constant reminder of who he is and what he's done for us. So in just a moment, we're going to take communion. Uh, but let's pray and then... Uh, who, whoever's going to serve communion, if you'll come up and oh, when I'm finished praying, we can do that. Father, I thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for just um, this opportunity just to worship you this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it's uh, just so true and so holy and so perfect. God, you were so great and you are greatly to be praised. Father, you are worth it. God, you are so worthy and you are so good. And God, we often fail to remember that. God, we often fail to make you the center of it all. But God, I pray that we would do that as we worship you. That we would just remember who you are and what you've done. And we would live a life abandoned for you. Trusting you and knowing you and loving you. And, and desiring our legacy when we die. Not to be, oh, Cody Walton was so good. Or Cody Walton was this. Or Cody Walton was that. But. Cody Walton loved Jesus. Father, I pray that's what it would be. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in Christ's name.